It's a core belief in the church that everyone has purpose. As Christians gather every week for worship, we're encouraged to follow our callings and use our spiritual gifts to glorify God and bless others in the ways that only we can. But if you're a woman who feels led to lead or teach, that calling quickly becomes complicated. 1 Timothy 2 seems to go out of its way to shut down the possibility of women teaching in the church at all, instead implying that women's spiritual role is limited to having kids. If women are given the spiritual gift that calls them to more though, what are they supposed to do? What role does God want women to have in the church? And how do we make sense of this divisive passage? First Timothy 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This passage has been criticized a lot for being incredibly harsh and misogynistic. Not only does it say that women aren't permitted to teach or lead, but it also seems to imply that they are lesser, whether because Adam came first or because he wasn't as stupid to fall for the snake's deception. And to make the passage even more abrasive, we finish it with the understanding that women can only be saved by giving birth to kids. It's a very surprising and confusing passage, no matter who you are. Many Christians just avoid this passage altogether nowadays, afraid of opening the massive amount of cultural baggage that comes along with it. But ignoring this passage doesn't make the questions and frustrations disappear. If anything, those issues only fester. I don't, I haven't heard any pastor do a sermon on First Timothy. Yeah. That'd be so fascinating if they tried. Whenever my fiance studies the Bible, she uses an orange highlighter to note verses or phrases that bother her. That way she's able to analyze them more later and see what God is trying to teach her through the challenge. Months after reading through 1 Timothy together though, this chapter is still soaked in orange ink. It validates a lot of ideas regarding women as lesser beings that are made to only give childbirth. Like that is your duty and you must fulfill it mm. and just be submissive, even though that word is used very vaguely to just be in the background. Yeah, essentially when people say be submissive, what they're really saying is be invisible. Yeah. It also insults women's intelligence. Mm. The idea that you're not allowed to speak in church because you don't know better and because you can't know better. Mm. The frustrating thing about this passage is the fact that there doesn't seem to be any other way to interpret it. The way 1 Timothy 2 is written seems so matter-of-fact that there seems to be no room left to question its intent. I know of so many women who, for this reason, felt lost as they searched for God's will. They felt so strongly called to teach God's word and had the incredible ability to do so, but had no idea how they could apply that gift faithfully in light of this very passage. There's no doubt that this verse has impacted countless women in countless ways, but it doesn't always end a woman's pursuit to teach. Sometimes, it acts as her inspiration. So I 
had a much more narrow view of women even than my husband had. So I had no aspirations to go to seminary. In fact, I didn't think women should go to seminary. This is Dr. Sandra Glahn. She's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and her story is deeply connected with 1 Timothy 2. It's from a very conservative tradition when I became a new believer outside of the tradition of my parents. And so I was going to youth group by myself and maybe didn't benefit from parental, you know, guidance on that maybe you're hearing some extreme views for whatever reason. Her understanding of this verse, along with her family life, quickly formed her perception of what she needed to do in order to live a faithful life for God. My grandmother and her mother were both only children. My mom was an only child. So we had the grandmas all to ourselves. So my vision of what my future would look like was very much wrapped up in having children mm. and throwing myself into being the kind of mom my mom and her mom had been. It was a wonderful vocation. Mm. So when my husband and I hit the brick wall of infertility, it was stunning. Mm. Uh, if anything, I had worried that like Susanna Wesley, I'd have 19 kids, right? It never <laughs> crossed my mind that I would have none. Over the course of the next seven years, we had seven pregnancy losses, an ectopic pregnancy. And then we had three failed adoptions. And so in our minds, we are doing everything we can to pursue what we perceived as God's ideal for a woman. And the, door were just, the doors were just slamming shut. And bizarrely, uh, on the other side of things, I was getting opportunities to teach. I was uh, asked to come teach writing at Dallas Seminary. I'm, I'm a professional writer. Mm. And but again, originally that was mostly because, you know, mom can write from home. <laughs> <laughs> it was not just a crisis, a marital, emotional, medical, ethical, it was all those things. But primarily for me, it was a spiritual crisis because I had no paradigm within my own system that I thought was biblical for what a woman who's married without kids does. And honestly, when I look back on it now, I can imagine how much pain I would have inflicted on single women. Mm. I probably would have been trying to fix them up with all, you know, yeah. <laughs> assuming it's the best for them too. Uh, how annoying, you know? I had to have a real paradigm shift on the biblical text. As she began her studies in seminary, she started to notice that her interpretation of 1 Timothy 2 didn't actually make sense in light of the rest of the Bible. And when I started seeing how the early church had lots and lots of virgin women who were committed to celibacy, that didn't align with what I was thinking and what I had been taught that Paul meant when he said in his letter to Timothy, a woman will be saved through childbearing. So I start looking at the biblical text and noticing, you know, the, the Proverbs 31 woman who's held up as the ideal, she's selling belts and, yeah. and teaching the Torah of Hesed. I'm just like, okay, where'd I get that idea? Mm. Got all these women prophesying, like Hulda, you have the Holy Spirit appearing to Samson's mother, but not his father, which mm. also didn't fit with my paradigm that God always speaks through the male as the you know, spiritual leader. Uh, all of yeah. that was being messed with by scripture. It was such an important paradigm shift for her that she devoted her entire dissertation to exploring the larger context of 1 Timothy and how that impacts the way we understand its message. It's a topic that continues to be extremely important to her to this day. In fact, she just published a book about it last month called Nobody's Mother. With how crucial this passage was to her own journey, and with how thorough her work was, I had no doubt she would be the best person to help me make sense of all these concerns. We've already mentioned how a surface-level reading of this verse doesn't really make sense in light of other important biblical passages. But as we started our conversation, Dr. Glon was quick to point out that it also doesn't make sense when compared to how Paul actually treated women in the church. Why is he sending Phoebe to Rome with his letter? Like, where's her family, right? Or, or even why uh, Luke 8, the first couple of verses talks about how Mary Magdalene and some other women, one of whom is married, are traveling mm. around with him and bankrolling the guys. But we sometimes read those verses about, you know, you're worse than an unbeliever if you don't provide for your family. And it's translated as if a man doesn't, he 
but doesn't have to have any male pronouns in there. Mm. Um, we've just read that into the text. And in fact, later in the same passage, Paul does call out gender and actually says, if a Christian woman has widows, she needs to take mm. care of them. You know, you're in a world where there's no such thing as a nurse, <laughs> as an occupation. Yeah. So a woman's going to care for her mother and her mother-in-law. I was at a, a marriage conference where husbands were taught that that is the verse that says it's their job to provide. And yeah. that, that's not what it says at all. It's in the context of taking care of widows, and it actually doesn't say a man. Interestingly, this surface-level interpretation is complicated further once we realize that it only makes sense in certain kind of cultures. Some of it, I think, is, is complicated by the post-industrial revolution. Because mm. when I began to travel overseas, uh, my husband works in remote Kenya a lot, I'm looking at women in huts going, it's never going to fly to tell them their highest calling is to stay inside the hut while their husband, you know, that it undermines his manhood if you earn money. Yeah. The husbands are saying, if I can find a woman who's planting me a garden and taking her <laughs> tomatoes down to the Agora to sell them, I have scored with a godly woman. Yeah. Again, all of this is conflicting with, you know, what I had been thinking. And also, some of it is is a sort of white upper class mentality that mm. comes from the husband in the factory, the wife at home is sort of the ideal. Yeah. Um, but for a lot of people, that hasn't really been an option. No. Uh, and so it had become really a mark of having arrived uh, socioeconomically to have a wife at home. Mm. And so some of that crept in our thinking in the church as well. I've, I've known of seminary couples where the husband was shamed during the years where his wife is supporting him to get him through school so that they can actually have a relationship so that he's not in school full-time and trying to hold down a job full-time while she's at home with babies or without babies, but you know, supposedly mm. isn't able to support him financially because that's a man's job, which actually is not at all what First Timothy says. Yeah, when you, when you first read it, it feels so um, abrasive. Yeah, especially in the English, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like there's no other way to read it in the English. But then, like you were saying, like the more that I've read the rest of the Bible, the more I realize this doesn't, it's not just that it's upsetting, it doesn't make sense. Exactly, it doesn't match Paul elsewhere. It doesn't, we should probably pull the camera back. He isn't writing to the church. Mm. He's not talking to women. He's talking to Timothy in a personal letter. It is for the church for today. It has application for us today, but we still have to remember the original audience was somebody who knew his vocabulary, knew what he was talking about. Hmm. And the, and Paul isn't directly saying to women, I want you to be quiet and, you know, yeah. uh, he's saying to Timothy, I'm not allowing, I'm not allowing, not I am allowing. Um, that's different from saying women shouldn't. Hmm. Paul is talking about his practice. And if, he is intending for all churches for all time to shut down half the church that has the gift of teaching because it violates something. That seems like a really important thing to have covered in Romans and 1 Corinthians, and, <laughs> yeah. right? It'd be like, everywhere. The Galatians, when he when he writes, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. Why isn't he putting an asterisk and going, I'm, I'm, I'm only talking here about salvation here i'm not talking socially because mm. he's addressing a social problem yeah yeah so i guess the the main question that we need to really explore in this conversation is what other way could there possibly be to faithfully read this passage in order to answer that we need to take a step back to understand the culture paul was writing in if we want to understand the issues paul was trying to address in this letter we first need to learn a little more about Artemis of Ephesus. That's kind of what your whole book that is about. Is my dissertation <laughs> driven by my personal quest and question. So here's how the logic went. I look at this literally, you know, personal letter to Timothy. And in the third verse, he says, I left you in Ephesus to teach certain people not to teach false doctrine. Mm. So we know false doctrine is a concern. And then the next question is, well, what were the false doctrines floating around in Ephesus? Well, we don't even have to go to the inscriptions to find that, although they help. We just go over to the book of Acts. Okay. And the book of Acts has two pretty long sections in chapter 19, back to back, about Paul is spending more than two years there. 
Um, but two things that happen. The first thing that happens is a whole bunch of magic workers and experts in the dark arts come to Christ and burn thousands of dollars of magic books. Mm. It's, it's the first bonfire in the vanities, if you will. And so, you know, Magic Central is happening here. Mm. We also notice that Paul is working wonders and miracles here. It says so many miracles are happening in the face of these magic workers that all Paul has to do is touch a handkerchief or an apron and people take it to the sick and they're healed. That mm. is not normative. That is not something that happens for all time. No. It looks like if you're reading between the lines that God is showing the magic workers that, that he is stronger, that mm. Christ is better, that Jesus is better. So, and we see this, we saw that as far back as the Exodus, right? You have uh, all the different kinds of gods being taken on, whether it's yeah. the god of flies or the god of boils or the, right, or the god of destroying water or frogs or whatever. Yeah, right? there's literally a, a verse where it says something along the lines of that God was punishing Egypt and their gods. Yeah. <laughs> it's very strange. Very strange. And again, we don't think that's normative. Well, most denominations don't. Mm. And so you're like, okay. Paul's gone into a mission setting. He's establishing the gospel and God is affirming his words and his testimony with miracles. Mm. We see that in that same chapter of Acts in Ephesus. The next thing that we see in Ephesus happening is that the silver workers are a little ticked. Actually, they're a lot ticked because Paul's gospel ministry is cutting into their souvenir business mm. because the temple of Artemis is the greatest of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People come from all over the empire. It's the most amazing human-made structure in existence at the time yeah. or in the known world, at least in the Western world. And so people are coming from all over and you know what happens in a city when the tourists show up, the economy benefits. And now their silver workers are upset because they're saying he's cutting into our economy. And not only that, it's going to shame the goddess and the temple's going to be shamed. And they're so upset that the city rushes into the theater, which is still there and holds 25,000 people. And for two hours, they're chanting, yelling, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Mm. So I read these two stories back to back for the historical, spiritual context at the time of the earliest Christians. And the first thing I notice is that they're not chanting great as Artemis. They're chanting great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, I would never mm. say great as Jesus of Dallas. Right? <laughs> right. So I wanted to know who's Artemis of the Ephesians at the time of the earliest Christians. Well, I read a book uh, titled I Suffer Not a Woman. And the authors uh, argue that Artemis is a fertility goddess. Mm. And that's why she has all these the she has these bulbous appendages that are uh, they claim are breasts, and they get that interpretation from Jerome. Mm. And so I'm thinking, well, that's a really interesting theory. You have words like motherhood and saved through childbearing. Maybe that explains it. Yeah. And then I read some reviews and Ephesus scholars, and they were pretty roundly silenced because the people who really were experts in Ephesus at the time of the earliest Christians said, yeah, no, that those are very late sources. They were using forces like the fourth century AD. Mm. So I go, how in the world do I narrow it down to just finding out who she was at the time of Paul? Mm. Separate out the inscriptions, look at the statues, look at the coins, look at the papyri, but limit yourself to approximately 100 years before and after this group. Yeah. But also go back and read Homer and get the backstory, like get, get what would have been the ancient story. So... I start in on Homer and the guys, and the first thing I notice is the story of Artemis of the Ephesians is she's the same goddess. I like to say in the same way that Barbie can be both the president and an architect. She can be black <laughs> and she can be white. Uh, you can be Artemis and you can be Artemis of the Ephesians, and they look very different, but it's the same goddess with different emphases. Maybe another analogy for us would be the Statue of, Statue of Liberty mm. in New York Harbor mm. is Lady Liberty. And the same statue is in Paris. Actually, we, see, we received Our Lady Liberty from France. Yeah. But only one of those cities has a connection to immigration. Mm. And the same is true that in Ephesus, Artemis of the Ephesians took on a certain persona. 
what was that persona? Well, what trickles down from the past? We know from our backstory that Artemis is the daughter of Zeus and Leto, but Zeus isn't married to Leto. Zeus is married to Hera. Zeus cheats on Hera. Hera Leto gets pregnant with his twins. And so when she goes to give birth, nobody in the empire really wants to give her safe refuge because they don't want to hack off Hera. Mm. But she finally finds a little grove called Ortigia that's near Ephesus. And she gives birth to Artemis. And goddesses and gods can be born full grown. Not full size, mind you, but more like a bonsai, right? It's mature, but it's tiny. And so she's mature and she understands what's going on with her mother like an adult would. And, but her mother writhes for nine days, giving birth to Artemis is first and Apollo is second. And I found almost nothing even acknowledging the existence of Apollo hmm. in Ephesus. It is Artemis's city. That's so interesting. She is the firstborn, the goddess of the first throne. And interestingly enough, the city of Delos claims that that's the birthplace of the twins. And of course, the Ephesians think that's a very base and silly, you know, argument. But yeah. Delos cel- celebrates Apollo, hmm. and Ephesus celebrates Artemis. And first is, you know, first throne. First is one of her titles, and it's not that different. If you know anybody who's got a twin, when they're together, typically the first time people meet them, the first question people ask is. Who's older? Who was born first? Yeah. Who cares, right? Yeah. If they're four minutes apart. We're still trying to find out. <laughs> Who's first? So that word first shows up in the creation story as Paul tells it. Mm, yeah. I think Paul is correcting a local creation story with the Genesis story. And I think some of us have misread it as a principle mm. when it's a narrative. I mean, if you just heard the words, Adam was first, you wouldn't say that's a principle. You'd say that's a story. I think he is saying in an in a context mm. where Artemis is elevated and her creation story is elevated, he is making a corrective to bring it back down to equality. Okay. So so to kind of piece all of this together so far, what you're essentially saying is when we look at the Bible and when we look at history, when we look at the culture and the context that surrounds when Paul was writing and who Paul was writing to. It becomes very clear that that is soaked in this cult of Artemis, specifically Artemis of Ephesus. Yes. Um, It's like if you were writing to your friend who's attending, I don't know, like some sort of like Star Wars convention and you're trying to remind them, hey, we love Star Trek. You know, you may play off of like, you know, different ideas and different references to the Star Wars culture that they're surrounded by. And it's just like, listen, Darth Vader may be Luke's father, but like Star Trek is the father of all the sci-fi. It'd be similar to that kind of idea. Exactly. I like, I like to say that it's like saying kryptonite when you're talking about a superhero and I don't have to say the superhero by name. And I think Paul is doing that all through first Timothy. And I think he's doing it in the book, uh, in the letter to the Ephesians. What do you picture? You know, wonder woman is derived from the, the feminine looking Artemis, Mm. uh, the short skirted, uh, arrow bow and arrow woman. And I think it's entirely possible that when he gets over to chapter six and he's talking about spiritual warfare, and waging war against the dark arts, what does he say? He says, put on the breastplate of righteousness hmm. to withstand the arrows of the devil. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the thing the local God is carrying around, really? <laughs> so this language, it's not far-fetched to say, to, to look at this specific passage and say, well, maybe in this specific passage, he's talking about Artemis. No, that's not the no. point here. Your, your point is essentially saying that the cult of Artemis informs all of the language that Paul is using whenever he's interacting with this people because it was that that prevalent in that area. Yes. So whenever he's trying to make a point, it, it's kind of like um when he when he goes and he talks about the nameless God. He sees the statue for the nameless God. And he uses that as a way to make a connection with the people that he's talking to. He's always arguing that Jesus is better. (laughs) Yeah. The ideas of the cult and the habits of the cult 
those are the things that Paul is really tuning into and borrowing language in order to be able to make his point as clear and effective to his to his audience as possible. And so that's going to come up in a lot of very subtle and clever ways because Paul is we essentially that's across all of the Ephesians yeah. and yes. Timothy. First and second Timothy, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important to note first of all that that sometimes the first thing people say is well, you're just completely relying on backgrounds. Mm. It's like, well, backgrounds are helping, but I took my cues from the book of Acts, which has a lot of what's happening in Ephesus. And, and one of the things I discovered in the last 10 years since I finished my dissertation mm. was that it's not just that magic is a big influence and Artemis is a big influence, but the two are related. Mm. I was seeing them as separate spiritual sort of phenomena. But I found inscriptions with incantations to Artemis and spells and just this connection. And that's when I noticed that Ephesians 6 and, and that language of overcoming the dark arts. Yeah. Another place that's, that's interesting in 1 Timothy is right in the beginning, normally when Paul begins a greeting in a letter, it's grace and peace to you okay. from our Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's yeah. just sort of his standard intro. But in 1 Timothy, he begins with a reference to God, our Savior, Lord, God, Christ. Like he pulls mm. out all the titles. And Savior is not uh, a word that Paul uses a lot. Mm. But when he does use it, he uses it in letters that are going to Ephesus or Crete, both of which have huge Artemis followings. And in fact, some have said First Timothy can't be written by Paul because he uses such a different vocabulary. Mm. And I would argue, well, he's borrowing his Artemis lexicon for that one. He's, he's going over to the Artemis dictionary in the same way that I don't usually use the word kryptonite. Right. But if I'm talking about Superman, I'm going to pull it out. Yeah. So just the fact that he starts his letter right off with shade against Artemis, who one of her titles I found in the inscription was Soteria, which is the female form of savior, Soter. And so he's starting right out going, Jesus is the Soter. Mm. And I left you in Ephesus to teach certain people, not to teach false doctrine. So then we look throughout First Timothy, what are some hints that there's false doctrine happening? Mm. So Artemis is a confirmed virgin all over the empire, but in Ephesus, her local flavor is delivery. Mm. And it is thought that not only does she have the power if she wants to, to deliver a woman safely through childbearing, but she could euthanize her with her arrows and make it painless. Mm. Uh, and when you think about childbirth as the number one cause of death for women at this time, yeah. if you've ever known anybody who had a C-section or preeclampsia or a labor that went too long, like she wouldn't have survived yeah. in that situation. So everyone knew, probably a family member mm. who had expired in childbirth. It was just a terrible dread. And so that's going to be the thing that they're going, women are going to Artemis's temple asking for help with yeah it, it's it's not savior in the sense of we think in the christian context of like artemis isn't bringing people up to heaven it's correct the idea of she's literally helping people deliver children that's right and we we sometimes we'll say somebody saved my life mm. uh used, and we mind we mean it literally and so we do use a form of save mm in the same way. And it's not usually for the average person in the Roman Empire, they're not usually thinking of heaven and hell. Right. Uh, they're not thinking eternity. They are thinking the emperor is a savior. He saved us, he delivered us. And so uh, Artemis is, is considered a savior, but not in terms of eternity, but more in terms of delivering. Mm. So a big, big challenge for a new Christian woman coming out of pagan worship. Mm. Uh, the apostle to the Gentiles is making inroads in this city. Her number one fear is going to be, what if I'm wrong? Mm. Like, here's where the rubber meets the road, because if Artemis is real, I'm in trouble. Yeah. But if Artemis isn't real, how do I know Jesus is stronger? Now that we have the cultural context of the cult of Artemis, we can finally read this letter in the same mindset that Timothy would have had when he first received it in Ephesus. In a minute, we'll return back to chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, and read it verse by verse with this new paradigm. But first, let's take a quick break as we soak it all in. We'll be right back. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of That Won't Preach. I've wanted to do this episode for a long time, and it's also been one of the most requested episodes as well. So I'm extremely thankful for Dr. Glan and the publisher, InterVarsity Press, for making this happen. They were so cooperative and helpful as I try to make sense of this crucial text. They also very graciously have a special discount for anyone who wants to pick up Glan's book, Nobody's Mother. If you use the link in the show notes below and use the promo code IVPPOD25, you can save 25% of your purchase. The book explores this topic in so much more detail than what we were able to cover in this episode. So if you or someone you know has struggled with these verses before, Nobody's Mother is an absolute must read. Again, that's IVPPOD25 for 25% off your order, and tell them that I sent you. Now, let's get right back into the episode. We've covered a lot of ground so far, so let's recap what we've learned. On the surface level, 1 Timothy seems like it's very cut and dry in its message restricting women's role in the church and in life in general. But as we look a little deeper, it becomes apparent that that modern interpretation makes no sense compared to the rest of the biblical testimony. Even Paul's other letters confirm that he is not trying to downgrade women's participation in the church in any way. What we see instead is a lot of clever references to the false doctrine Paul mentions at the beginning of the letter, the same false doctrines that surrounded Timothy thanks to the cult of Artemis of Ephesus. We see the cult's influence explicitly in Acts 19, and we can see how Paul plays off of their teachings throughout his writings to the Ephesian church. That's especially true here, as Paul writes to Timothy about how he should approach correcting the false teaching that has crept into his church congregation. So let's go through 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, line by line, with Artemis of Ephesus in mind, in order to see how the context of the cult changes the way we understand these verses. One of the things that needs to happen is the men need to settle down. They are angry. The women, they let them learn, but they got to do it quietly. Like there's something going on in terms of conflict between the men and women. We often Mm. go straight to the women's section and pass over the intro to that is directed to men. It could be husbands and wives. In Greek, the word is the same for man or husband, woman or wife. The fact that it's referring to childbearing at the end might tip it. There might be marital conflict happening. Mm. Um, Not really sure. We we only get, you know, one side of the phone conversation. But what we do know is that he tells the men to settle down too. Mm. And I don't know of anybody who says, uh, the Bible teaches that men are more angry than women, <laughs> uh, but he gives specific instruction to the men to stop being angry. But right. I have heard that women were made for submission, mm. taken right out of that same passage later. And I would say it's true women were, were made for submission, but only because all humans were made to be in submission to our God. Yeah. And our Savior submitted himself to his Father, and we are all to be Christ-like. So being a servant and serving another is a Christ-like thing, but that doesn't mean we do it because we're in a hierarchy of power. It means we do it voluntarily because we're equals. Yeah. It's so helpful to to remember that where this this verse starts is addressing the men um, because it's a lot shorter and so it's a lot easier to read over. And um, I think it's really, really important to be able to recognize that what Paul is focused on here isn't women in the church. Correct. It is the the believers in the church. Right. He is talking and addressing to these people in Ephesus and the issues that they were uh, facing. And he's using different things that in their culture that they would be used to and the different conflicts that are arising because of their context and trying to redirect them into um into being able to follow Jesus right. uh more right. faithfully exactly and i think it it was really really helpful to be able to see how um how artemis not just the the cult of artemis was for everyone 
um, and affected everyone. But that also helps us piece together the the different things um, that Paul addresses immediately after, like the modest dress and the yeah. braided hair. Yeah. And immediately, as Westerners, we're thinking bathing suits, right? We're thinking, <laughs> you know, provocative sexually. And certainly, that would be included in the word modesty. But we also have the same use of modest as when we say they live in a modest home. Mm. It means it's not ostentatious and it has social implications. And we know that Paul is referring to social implications because he follows it up with gold, Mm. expensive apparel, and braids, which required basically slave labor. You're not doing your own braids. Mm. Somebody else is serving you when that's happening. And so Paul appears to be saying, don't wear your emblems of status to the gathering of the equal. Mm. And interestingly enough, 1 Timothy is loaded with references to wealth and the wealthy people needing to... Uh, not be ostentatious and to, he, he has some real direct things said about people with wealth. And it was a very wealthy city. We have like six harbors there. You've got people coming in and out from all over the world. In fact, I think that's why Paul chose to camp there because you can sail to Egypt. You can sail to, you know, all kinds of points all over the empire. You can get to and from Corinth. You can get to Jerusalem. And so Paul parks there because it's Harbor City and the harbor has good trade and pearls are the diamonds of the day. And if you're on the sea, you're going to have pearls. You're going to have a better diet than most Mm. people because you can get protein from the sea. So it's a rich, rich city. And the inscriptions really bear that out. If you think about when you and I, if we were to go to a cemetery, you can pretty much pretty quickly figure out who the rich families are Mm. by who's got the hugest monuments whose names are the biggest well something very similar happens in in the inscriptions in the writings in stone the romans loved writing in stone and that's awesome for those of us trying to figure out new testament backgrounds yeah because they've given us not only words in their context but they're very hard to tinker with words and they don't require scribes to recopy them Mm. so we can get sort of this set in stone phraseology, things like finding uh, the female form of Lord is all over the city. I think I found more than 25 references to Artemis as a Lordess. Gotcha. It, it isn't uh, just modesty in the sense that we are thinking of, but it almost sounds like in a way it's it's more so our idea of humility. Bingo. Power. Yeah. Yeah. And that also... It, we we talked a little bit about this when we were talking about the Paul speaking into the creation myth. Um, that power comes into the next idea when he starts talking about um, Adam was was around before Eve, and it was Eve who was deceived. Um, it's really easy when we don't have the context of Artemis to see Paul taking these two people we see as equals and then belittling Eve. And making a hierarchy that Adam is more important because he was born first and uh, he was, you know, he wasn't as dumb. Like, that's essentially how we read it in English. But it sounds like with Artemis being so prevalent and like, you know, her brother, which was born second, um, isn't even mentioned anywhere in (laughs) Ephesus. It really sounds like that is what. Paul is is that what Paul's connecting to when he's talking about Adam versus Eve? That's what I suspect. That's what I suspect that he's create he is correcting a wrong creation story with a right creation story. And here's another reason I think that's what he's doing. If Paul wanted to make something true of all time based on Eve that she is more easily deceived, he's using that as a reason for women to be silent and learn. So why would he not say but Adam full on sin, knowing what he was doing. Mm. So where's the penalty for Adam? Yeah, that just doesn't it doesn't make sense how we have interpreted that and what it must mean. And to then think that women can quote only teach children mm. when if the point is that the women are deceived, <laughs> all women are deceived, and right. you can't trust all women. Why are you trusting them with the most vulnerable people in the church? Yeah. Yeah, it just says it doesn't make sense in other Pauline references to maturity and training and teaching. Again, why is he sending Phoebe to Roman to the Romans with his letter? Because typically, if you deliver the letter, you're the one reading it. Yeah. And sometimes even maybe explaining it. Mm. And it just doesn't fit all, all the other things Paul is 
is doing in a lot of other places. And it doesn't fit Jesus. Mm. Jesus is the first rabbi to have a female student, at least that we know of, right? And what I was referencing earlier, the Jesus and the guys receiving, uh, being bankrolled Mm. by women, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit that if he thought women were were more easily deceived as a class and needed to be silenced, it doesn't fit a whole lot of other behaviors that both the Lord and Paul himself did. It makes sense why he's taking it back to Adam and Eve. Correct. Because again, he's talking about creation. And if we're dealing with uh, a false teaching that's prevalent in the area. Which we know he's doing from 1-3. That's why he's writing to Timothy. Exactly. He's already told us what he's doing. All we have to do is go back to that time, to that place, and find out what was the most prevalent teaching that contradicts the Bible. Congratulations, we have found it. In the book of Acts. Yeah, it's in the book of Acts. Like It's not even something that we have to, like the the history research that we've done up to this point, you know, the, the, we can look at that and that's really helpful to bring that clarity. But I think it's so interesting to point out the facts that we haven't even need, this isn't something that was um, just completely a mystery up until 50 years ago. This is something that the Bible has always been trying to say and the Bible has been trying to clarify it's just whether or not we've been willing to listen to what it has to say. Well, you know, it's interesting you should say that because for a lot of church history, the focus was not on Adam first. The focus was on women are more easily deceived. Mm. And if you think about, first of all, you have Aristotle really influencing the early church fathers. And Aristotle, 4th century BC, believes that a woman, well, the best way I know to explain it is if you like chocolate chip cookies. And the woman is the squishy version that came out too early, and the man is the fully cooked version. A woman is an undercooked man, that the ideal of every human is a fully cooked man, but the defective ones come out early. So this is the sort of background thinking about women that is influencing some early people. So you can read wonderful things from Augustine Mm. on grace. You can read wonderful things from Bonaventure in the Middle Ages or Aquinas Aquinas has beautiful things to say about friendship, but he doesn't have a lot of friendship with women. Mm. And and he's very influenced by Aristotle. So you'll see horrible things said about women on the in the writings of some of these fathers. Fast forward to a time when you have more women getting an education and you have less of a gap. You don't have a 15-year-old marrying a 30-year-old anymore like they did. Right. So it's easy to think of women as cute little children, right? If you're <laughs> there's this huge gap. Mm. And you're thinking, and since some of those gaps have been closed, interestingly enough, we have shifted to emphasizing creation order. That creation order emphasis is very much more emphasized today than it has been through the centuries. It's so tragic to me because that entirely misses the point of what Paul was trying to say. Yes, like it it, does. He's trying to say Jesus is better. Yeah, Jesus. And we read him as shut up. Be quiet. It reminds me of like, I, I just remember this like youth group competition and it was split up between guys versus girls. And like, they were like chanting like Jesus was a man. And it was just like, oh, wow. like it's, yeah. it's, it was yeah. disgusting and it's terrible because yeah. it completely misses the point. And I feel like that's essentially what has happened on a large scale with this. The point isn't that men are better than women. It's that Jesus is better than Artemis, Artemis, that Jesus yes. is the savior for all of yes. us screw ups. Like, yes. that's the heart of what yeah. what Paul is getting at here. And I think Paul is saying to Timothy in Ephesus in this transition period at the beginning of the church. There, I think he's saying a woman who is committed to Christ doesn't go to the temple to leave her offering for Artemis, mm. puts her life on the line. She's not going to die. Yeah, I don't think he's saying it for all time. I don't think he's even saying it for 50 years later in Ephesus. I think he's coming out of signs and wonders that he's seen that are taking on the magic. And now they're taking on the childbirth thing. Which is the last big thing and probably the most confusing and disturbing part about this whole thing for us is it sounds like Paul is saying like the only way women can get eternal salvation is by just having children. Yes. And 
it completely contradicts everything else that he's ever said. But how can we start making sense of this idea of when Paul says women will be saved through childbirth? Yeah. So a little bit of grammar here helps us because, of course, our good translators have had to make some interpretive choices to make it make sense. So Paul says to Timothy, but she will be saved through childbearing. Mm-hmm. If they basically continue to hope, you know, faith, hope, um, and propriety. And if you're like, why does he change from she to they? That's not good grammar. Paul's mm-hmm. a really good grammarian. He knows the difference between a singular and a plural. Yeah. But then the very next line is, this is a faithful saying. But because in the Middle Ages, we added verse references and paragraph divisions, instead of having it all shoved together in one and trying to guess, we decided it was decided for us that this is a faithful saying starts a new paragraph. And then we put a colon. If somebody desires to be an elder, that person desires a good thing. Mm. But I'm going to argue some of the manuscripts are laid out differently. Some of them put, this is a faithful saying right after she'll be saved through childbearing. If they basically continue in the faith, this is a faithful saying. And if that's what he's doing, then you have to ask, does Paul do that? Does he take a local saying and put a Christian spin on it? Why? Yes, he does. He Mm. loves to. Example, he says, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, and then, you know, let each man have his own wife. I think he's quoting a local saying, and sometimes the text even puts quotation marks in there Mm. to flag us that the translators think he's taken something local. I think he's borrowing a local Artemis saying that is in the singular, she'll be saved through childbearing, Mm. and then adding his Christian spin, if they. He's not, again, talking about going to heaven. He tells the Corinthian wives, widows, he wants the widow, young widows in Corinth to get to stay single, mm. but he wants the young widows in Ephesus to get married. Well, we think that Corinth was a little more oversexed than Ephesus. Mm. Ephesus was into virginity. Uh, if you know, we tend to be like our gods, right? We tend to be like what we worship. Yeah. And what hint do we get that there there are a lot of single women in Ephesus? Well, First Timothy 3 has so many widows, he has to divide them into three groups. Mm. And the word widow in Paul's world did not necessarily have to mean you'd been married. It could be a single gal without a husband. Mm. They didn't have a word, just like we don't really have a good word for a without a man, woman. Yeah. What we're dealing with here is something something that, again, has nothing necessarily to do with eternal salvation that's not what he's focused on totally doesn't have to do with yeah 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 what he's saying is he's riffing off of this idea that a woman will be saved through childbirth what we know is that in in the local lore when a woman is giving birth to a child uh artemis is there to either help her through it or, or euthanize her. Yep. Euthanize her humanely. Like that is her essentially divine role and relationship with these women. And so, of course, she's going to be saved through childbirth right. either way. It's her prayer, at least. Yeah. What we end up having, though, is Paul is riffing off of that. He's saying, yes, she's going to be saved through childbirth. In fact, whoever's going to have a child, they're all going to be saved through childbirth, but it's not going to be through Artemis. It's going to be through Jesus. And he qualifies it if basically they're they're faithful. He's not saying any woman who walks into your church. Mm. He's saying she will be saved through the childbearing if. Yeah. And, and he's listing qualifications like they have hope. It's not that childbearing itself is the salvation. It's childbearing is the Correct. danger you need being saved Correct. from. Good, good observation. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Correct. And I think by flipping that... Um, it starts to make so much more sense. Salvation is definitely one of those words that gets like over churchified. We get so used to hearing it yes. that we kind of lose sight of like that it could have other meanings. And I think here it's really important to recognize what would this mean um, for a pregnant young woman to be able to hear these words in this new Christian context, what what would this line in Paul's letter mean for one of the pregnant wives in the church of Ephesus? It means Jesus is better. Hmm. Jesus is better. He's he's just better. I, I do think Paul is 
very concerned about the false doctrine that's happening in the church, but he's also absolutely sure that Jesus is better. And I, there's, there's one other place I see him kind of hinting at that over in his letter to the Ephesians, where when we read that we become believers, we know that we have an inheritance, which and our down, down payment on our inheritance is the Holy Spirit. Mm. You're like, if that's the down payment, what is the inheritance? Yeah. The inheritance is God himself. Mm. And I found an inscription where somebody is taking his entire inheritance and offering it to Artemis. Mm. And it would have been readable to anybody who's literate. So again, the contrast, you have to give up everything and give it away to your God. And Paul is teaching, yeah, in our system, God gives you the inheritance. Mm. And not only, it's God. Yeah. Of that card, right? Um, yeah. And that's that's how he begins his letter to the Ephesians. So he just mm. got all this loaded language, which you don't have to know Artemis worship to appreciate that we get an awesome inheritance as believers. But then when you read the contrast of what he's up against, it's like it's like in hyperdrive on steroids. Mm. Jesus is better. So I think we've finally been able to get to a point where we can much clearer see what Paul is aiming for and also get to um, a wisdom that we can actually start applying in, my, in our own life. Yeah. It's also really important because this passage is no longer just about women. This is yeah. something for everyone. So how can we apply that wisdom? Yeah, that's a great question. There are a couple of things that come to mind. I think the first thing that comes to mind is when dealing with falsehood, mm. educate. Mm. He doesn't throw them out of the church. Uh, he doesn't slander them publicly or publicly humiliate them. Mm. He says, let them learn. They got to learn in a certain way. Their demeanor's got to change. Mm. I think that also it's really important to notice that he addresses both sides the men and the women are up to something bad and he doesn't just sort of pick on one but he goes after everybody who's in the wrong i think it's uh, another application is to see that if in fact paul's vision for the church is that the church is a family mm. that we need to act like brothers and sisters and one of the ways that we do that is we don't try to one-up each other in showing off our class. Mm. We don't try to shame other people who have less than we do. Um, we don't show favoritism when somebody comes in the church, you know, dressed nicer. Mm. There's also really a, a big emphasis, it would appear, on what is the local stranglehold that is keeping people from maturity and going after it and showing how Jesus is better. Mm. Whether it's in Dallas, there's a lot of materialism. Mm. In Oregon, it was recreation. Yeah. Like each each place I've been or lived in Washington, D.C., where I lived, it was government power. Yeah. Like that doesn't mean that there's only one sin, but there's sort of a sin of the city that mm. uh, the people are clamoring after. And I think you show how in D.C., he's the Prince of Peace. He, the government will be on his shoulders. Hmm. In Dallas, you, you show that money isn't everything, that you have a wealth that's in heaven and actually give away your power. Mm. In Oregon, it would be he's the firstborn overall creation. Creation is awesome. Celebrate it. Get out and appreciate it. Just don't worship it. Mm. Worship the one that made it. Mm. Paul's strategy is brilliant, and I think we would do well to study it. Yeah, that's such a helpful way to look at it, of the sin of the city that you talked about. Because even earlier, you talked about the, that's the reason why this letter is written so differently from the letter to the first Corinthians, because they were dealing with different cultures that prioritized different yeah. things that kept people from God in different ways. And I think that is really something that would be helpful for, for us to be able to ask of looking around, not just our towns and our cities, but our churches and asking yes. what is this what is the sin that has overshadowed god um and what are the ways that we need to be starting to respond to that 
And he didn't respond to it by railing against it. Mm. Uh, in fact, when everybody's in the stadium or the theater, the, the county, the city clerk says, he hasn't blasphemed our goddess. Mm. He's just said that the gods made with hands aren't really gods. And you have to laugh because you're like, well, okay. So he basically <laughs> says she's worthless. Yeah. But he didn't come out and say it. He wasn't railing against mm. her. He's offering something better. Yeah. In the case of women in fear, he's saying, not only you're not going to die, but you'll be delivered. Yeah. Obviously, this has been a really important paradigm shift for you as you've explored yeah. this passage, as you've explored this topic as a whole. How, how has this research helped transform your view of either women's role or your own faith? Great question. I think that there are two ways to get it wrong. One way is to make everything male. Mm. And... uh and that leaves out, it is not good for a man to be alone. Mm. What would it hurt to have women in the elder meeting, even if you don't believe they have a vote? Instead of having them outsiders giving input, mm. have them at the table, uh, at, rooted in Genesis, which is we need each other. We don't know that women bring nurturing and men re, you know, bring leadership. We don't mm. have to divide out what we think the gender differences are, which can uh, equal essentialism. All we need to know is we need each other, and we're just going to trust the mystery of that. Mm. So I think that's one way of looking around. If you have a church missions committee that's all men, let's get some women on it. If you have only women greeting at the door, let's get some men out there. Yeah. If you have an altar call, instead of saying the elders will be up front, you say we have some men and women up here that are, are happy to pray with you mm. so that people can go talk to whoever they might be comfortable with. I think there's a gender parity that, has, that happens that that shifts from everything has to be male down to the ushers, even though the Bible mm. certainly doesn't say you have to be a male to usher, but we see that in our church. Mm. But then the other extreme has then often been women saying, hey, I got a right to teach. Mm. And I think a much better approach is we are brothers and sisters, and it is not good for a man to be alone. And the implication there is not good for a woman to be alone either, because mm. she's made to answer that. So how can we work together? How can we model healthy male-female interdependency? Mm. I think there's a neglected section in 1 Corinthians 11, that complex section about head coverings that's often missed. Mm -hmm. And he, Paul, near the end, says, woman's made for man, but every man comes from a woman. So you got forness and you got fromness. And there are, then he says they're all from God. And he uses the word interdependent. And I think we need to be, instead of looking at how can we elevate men, how can we elevate women, we should be looking at how can we be interdependent. That is part of what Paul was going after when he's concerned that there's some men or husbands who are angry, they need to settle down mm. and be, live a quiet life. And you've got women or wives that are not ready to teach and they need, and however they're learning is not with the demeanor you need to have. And instead, both groups need to settle down and learn to trust. Mm. This is, it feels like such a sticky topic in general. Um, but, you know, what can we do about how this verse is misunderstood and misused in the church communities today? A big thing that's really important to do is give each other the benefit of the doubt. What I would hate for my research to be used for is for people to say, see, you've been trying to keep women down this whole time. Mm. I think men and women have really wrestled with this text and they've said, to their credit, I'll be countercultural if I have to be to obey the word of God. And that's what I think it's saying. Now I think we have better data that mm. says, well, we've misunderstood it. So it is time to humble ourselves and make a course correction. Love believes all things. And yeah, there's a place to discern when somebody's got ill motives. But a lot of times in the church battles over this, people's hearts are in the right place. They're just trying to be true to scripture. Mm. And that's what they thought it said. Like you said at the beginning, it's kind of like what the, just reading it on the surface in English, that's what it looks like. Mm. So a little bit of grace. Yeah. If we're going to take the understanding that women are never to teach men, in the context of the church, that that doesn't mean a man is prohibited from learning something from a woman. Mm. If Paul is silencing women, that doesn't mean he says men can't learn. And I have seen it where a man will learn from a child, but not from a woman, because he mm. thinks he's obeying Paul here. 
And there are so many other places that show that's not what he modeled. Mm. We've guarded the front door in a lot of churches against radical feminism. We have not guarded the back door against misogyny. There is so much more to explore when it comes to Artemis of Ephesus and 1 Timothy. So if you're wanting to continue this conversation, Nobody's Mother is the perfect place to start. And it's with IVP Academic, and it should be available by the time this podcast releases, you know, in all the places you buy books. Yes. Again, you can get 25% off when you order with the link below using the promo code IVPPOD25. You can also find some more resources as well, including some recommended by Dr. Glon herself. Thank you so much, Dr. Glon, for coming on the show. And thank you for listening to That Won't Preach. I hope this podcast can be an encouragement as you continue to ask hard questions and explore your faith. If you liked this show, let me know by leaving a rating in your podcast player and by leaving a review. For more episodes and resources, be sure to head over to bit.ly slash that won't preach. Again, that's bit.ly slash that won't preach. Thank you.